0: This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. How's your RailsConf prep coming?
1: I have to work on that.
0: (laughs) How am I going to, oh my God, because
1: Rails and then the sale and like when time, I don't know. (laughs) Shit, RailsConf, that's right, I freaked out when I got the speaker's dinner email because
0: they're like, RailsConf is less than two weeks away. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay, so it sounds like you're in slightly worse shape than I am. Hi, Sean. <laughs> Hi there. How are you? Good. Uh, what have you been up to this week? I fixed Android tooling yeah you told me about that Uh, it took about uh, five minutes one line change yeah so you spent 15 minutes of an episode 20 minutes of an episode complaining about it and then fixed it in one line so that's nice
1: it still doesn't do unit tests but i'm going to do that at some point but this app actually doesn't have a lot of unit tests because there's not any significant logic right now outside of the ui
0: cool yeah i've been continuing on my awesome safari in this project Today's frustration is dealing with a code base that uses both mini test and rspec which i keep finding my way onto. And why why I, does anyone do that? I think what happens is like somebody starts it's in every case i've seen it somebody starts with test unit or whatever and moves to mini test. I don't the, the distinction between the two still confuses me. I don't understand. But um and then you can write a
1: vim macro though to like
0: or or with do it with sed like to convert. You think so? For almost every case because at this point i would just do that because there's so many little things that you're like oh whatever i have a I, I run rake and it runs some specs and then it runs all these tests and it's fine except like when the problem i was having was every time i'd run an rspec test mini test auto run was somehow getting required somewhere and so it would output like the rspec results and then it would blow th- blow up the terminal with like a bunch of new lines, and then it would say like the mini test output of like zero tests, zero failed, zero errors, and so I couldn't see it. My little split that I have for my tests it was a nightmare. But all sorts of little things break, and uh, I just keep finding. I think what happens is people like start writing mini tests, and then decide somebody comes along and decides they like specs better, and they're like, we're going to convert this all to specs, so nobody ever gets around to converting everything to specs. So well, if I that mean, can like, be what, what
1: actually would change in an, in an unusual way, like you've got cl- the class name but that should be just describe and then everything up until the word test, right? Mm-hmm. And then setup do or def setup super changes to before each teardown do or def teardown super changes to after each.
0: And then, I mean, assert assert
1: equals. Right, All the defs,
0: but all the defs would have to be, and you could still do assert and assert equals in your RSpec tests. You could, that's true. So you don't have to change any of those, but all the method definitions have to change to... Um, like describe blocks probably or it, blo- or I it blocks. i guess it blocks
1: yeah it'd be single nested right
0: and then you have to do and this particular code base has mini tests and then also mini test spec which looks a lot like r spec but is well, not r spec should make it even easier right? though right that one should be easier although the assertions there are not like there those aren't just plain assertions like mini right. test must assertions Right. must equal has to turn into like expect something to equal
1: or, or should just, maybe
0: yeah or, or just change should. it to
1: should and turn on the hybrid syntax right i don't know
0: yeah, I, it wouldn't be idiomatic
1: RSpec, but it would run with a single test runner, which would be an improvement. Yeah,
0: it's the second time I've gotten into the situation where people are kind of like mid conversion, and I like RSpec a lot better than MiniTest, but it's it, I don't I don't think it's ever worth <laughs> switching, switching project. Like, I'd have to learn like if I were going to do some of the like I know the RSpec tricks, right? So if I were going to really dive into the both both the times I've been in this situation, it's been people are moving to RSpec, so I can just do what I know in RSpec. And I haven't had to. I haven't been forced to like. Oh, how would I do this in MiniTest? But um, I'm sure I could handle it. But yeah.
1: Um. But no, I think I'm with you. If I were ever on a project that was using MiniTest, I don't see ever a situation where I like RSpec enough more uh, enough over it to justify switching mid project.
0: Yeah, I don't know if there's ever a case like to switch anything large like that mid project. Like we've i think we've talked before about like how many times do you ever actually change your database adapter right so like that's one thing you're not you probably don't want to investigate changing but little things like uh, this project also has j builder templates and then also active model serializers it's like oh just pick one so i can delete one of these from the gem file and then they have um somehow there's puma and thin which are both (laughs) rack servers how does that not break they're in there uh well one of them's in development and one of them's in not development but i don't know why that's 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 never dangerous (laughs) uh let's see i wrote down some of these ones that were like all all these things kiss metrics and mix panel <laughs> <laughs> i don't know
1: this sounds like an indecisive client
0: uh, I, mean, I think it's the project's been around for a while right and so and there's been a number of people that work on it so what happens is like people have their own personal preferences or things go in and out of style right so two so one of those two things or a combination of both of those things happen well the, and that last one is just the case for segment yeah i've been trying to make that case there's another thing that they use called google tag manager which i guess is somewhat like that i'm not really sure but i I really like segment i guess it's probably more pricey than not using it that's one of the issues i guess i don't know i don't know what the pricing is it seems reasonable to me when i look it up on the website but
1: everything seems reasonable when you don't have to pay for it
0: (laughs) that's true (laughs) yeah so i had a friend email me something a few weeks ago he's listening to the show and he's uh, a few episodes behind but a while ago on an episode, we said that naming something after a pattern was a terrible idea. Yes. And that you should, like, find a domain name for your your object, right? I don't think we said it was a terrible idea. I just I think we said, like,
1: it's almost always wrong with rare right. exception.
0: And then he sent me a quote from Martin Fowler, which I don't know. I don't know if I want to read the whole thing here, but it says one thing that i feel is important whatever the details of your case is to have a consistent naming policy for the roles of the objects involved i sometimes hear people say that you shouldn't put pattern names into your code but i don't agree often pattern names help communicate roles the different elements play so it's silly to spurn the opportunity so he says like i use gateway following following the coining of the gateway pattern in patterns of enterprise architecture application application architecture right so he says he uses connection here to show the raw link to an external system etc so do we have this wrong should we be using pattern names more often than we do like are we are we trying too hard i think it depends on if the pattern name actually
1: does describe a lot about the object and i think in the case of gateway or connection that does, and you're actually, the pattern itself is already named after more of the metaphor of, like, very specifically how you would use it and why you would use it. Whereas null, the null object pattern, gives zero context about why you would use it. it
0: so, like, how you would use it in place of null, but that's meaningless. So, like, guest is much more of a better, a much, a much better name than null user in that case. Because right. like, that tells you what it represents. It represents a guest in your system. Right. Whereas null user tells me exactly as much information as nil tells me,
1: other than I know I can call some methods on it. Right.
0: But like one of the conversations I was having around this is, let's say you have a strategy pattern, right? So like such and such strategy. The example I gave was um, in an app I did recently, or maybe actually now close to a year ago. um, There were multiple ways that you could pay for an order. So there were charging strategies, basically. You Mm -hmm. could pay for it by credit card. It could be a discounted or strategy. There could be, like, I forget exactly all the different strategies we had. But just putting strategy in the name was something I fought against because I was like, well, that's the pattern, right? So I didn't do that. But I think in hindsight, after reading this and then hindsight looking at if I had put strategy in the name, like if I had said credit card strategy rather than just like credit card charge or credit card charging strategy or whatever, you could have done, like, a fuzzy find on the files and seen, like, oh, look at this, strategy appears five times, like, these are, oh, this is a strategy pattern here, without having to, like, look into the implementation to know, like, oh, I'm plugging a strategy in here, right? So just from some file names, you can get an idea of what the architecture of the application looks like.
1: Right, but then, so there's a couple of questions here, like, number one, do you actually care about knowing all of the possible things that you're going to have, or do you care about the interface? Is it more likely you're going to be in a situation of, like, I have this object, and it is of this class, why do I have it, what is it used for? Or is it like, I mean, if we're talking Haskell or Scala, right, something like this might even just be a union type, and you would have a known subset of possible things that would that would end up going in here, and they would all be in the same file.
0: Sure, yeah, certainly. Or even in Java, right, everything would have the same interface. True, yeah. I don't know, it's also
1: like when, when you're naming the object based on the strategy, you are assuming, A, the strategy provides a lot of context, which it may or may not, and B, that the reader will know what the strategy is. Like, I don't actually know what the gateway strategy is, but uh, that, that one eno- is more or less descriptive enough that I'm pretty sure I could hazard a guess. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, collection. Sure. I'm saying strategy, and I should be using pattern. But, like, right, you're not going to name it. I mean, first of all, if you have a custom collection class, probably the most important detail is why do you need a custom collection class? Right user collection is not going to be like,
0: Okay, this is a collection of users. That gives me absolutely no meaningful context. A collection of users could be like a team, right? So like if you call that collection of if you call that users collection, that's a that's a like it's users and it is a the pattern is that it's a collection. Right. But if it's a team and for whatever reason, you needed a custom collection for that. Right. At least, you know what those users in that collection represent or something.
1: And I, and that's the thing is I'm even looking for like context of, yeah, how is it used as a big one, and why do you and in that particular case, why do you have that instead of a list? Right Like relation makes, makes sense. Well, relation assumes that you are in the domain of, of relational databases, but like as a name that describes, as opposed to active record collection, right? it describes that it is the, it is the result of a potentially unexecuted SQL query. Right. Okay? I don't know. it depends we're consultants everything depends
0: <laughs> okay but I, it made me reading that made me feel better about the times when i can't find a good name uh and i just use a pat i just use the the pattern name so long as i guess so long as you know it's not one of those things that just portrays absolutely zero meaning i got one more okay. before we move on user presenter right That's... Presenter's
1: <laughs> the worst pattern to name anything after
0: <laughs> i mean what i gather from user presenter is uh it's a user, and you're going to use it to. There's going to be some things on there that you're going to use in the view, right? Yeah. But now you're in a situation where you have to, where, like, what if you have a different way you want to present the user? Do you just add everything to user presenter and have it have some additional methods that you might be able to call on this other thing? In which case, why isn't it, why is this any better than a helper? Right. So, whereas if you just make these things decorators that are well named and you can just decorate them and decorate again, right. You can combine them in interesting ways and you can keep them properly named. Yeah, I agree with you. Don't do presenter or decorator. Right. Yeah, uh, I said make them decorators, but I meant name them properly, not use decorator. No, as the I know. Name. I know.
1: <laughs> App decorators, most informative folder name ever.
0: And the other piece of feedback he sent me was like super much much longer, and I I can't I can't read it here, but basically it came out of the time when I, re- I was talking about that there's a method in clearance that was public, but it was mostly just used internally. I couldn't imagine anybody would ever have touched it, and I changed it, right? So there was a discussion there that gets to something. I have to read the whole thing to get into what was going on. But like in my head, what it tipped off was, of late, I've been doing a lot of code spelunking as debugging. And it puts me in a position where I have to be really careful because knowing the internals of how an object works, I can jump to conclusions about, like, oh, well, I know that method A ends up calling method B, so I only have to call method A. Or I only want this part of what method A does, so I, I can now know I can call directly method B, right? So I know exactly, I know the internals of how things are wired, and it's not necessarily how things are documented, right? So when you start getting into the point of, like, like my favorite debugging technique of late has been to throw a binding dot pry in my program. If people who aren't Ruby developers listening to this, that's basically just a debugger statement kind of pry pry lets you do some cool code. magic
1: debugger that lets you like edit source code in line and change execution.
0: Right. Paths. So I would, I would do that. And then I, I type show source and I type the method, right. And I'm like, show me, show me the source of this method. And then that's how I keep debugging. Yeah. Um, and that it's, immensely helpful but it's to the point now where i'm so comfortable doing that that i um, i do that often before even bothering to consult the documentation and i don't know if that speaks to what i expect to get out of documentation or if it's just that doing this is so much more convenient i'm the same way other than the having evolved to use
1: pry which i know i should be but puts is just so hard hard coded into my behaviors
0: now. I have mostly replaced puts with pry with the exception of when the code is running somewhere that I just need to see some output in a log or something I can put yeah, but uh I think
1: since I do the same thing and I think in general, the more experienced developers become, the more frequently they start like immediately going to just source diving over reading the docs i would say I would say it is definitely. The first one that it is speaking more to what you expect to get out of the documentation
0: so then we should do better job of documentation so that we don't expect to have these problems i mean and every other ruby developer every other developer in any context making open source software right and like part of the problem too is even if it has the greatest documentation i have to track it down right and i have to google for it or i have to you know i mean for a long time, RubyGems by default installed the documentation for you, like when you installed a uh, when you installed a gem. With, it still does. Well, I well, that's what I'm getting to. Does it do it by default still?
1: Yeah, we just have things in our uh ZSHRC to right. make I, it not do that. I
0: assumed that it actually had stopped doing that by default as well, but I but long before that I had also turned it off because I was like, oh it takes too long to install this documentation, right? Yeah. But then I don't have all the documentation at my fingertips. I can't just type re... And look up the documentation.
1: I mean, really, if you're going to be spending some time reading documentation, going to rdoc.info isn't very hard. Yes, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? rdoc.info slash gem slash gem name or then just the GitHub?
0: Yeah, account? there's there's also um, locally, like if you use OS 10, there's also, uh, is it called Dash? Is that what the name of it is?
1: Oh, is that the other thing that I'm supposed to use? Because it'll, it'll make me way faster, but i don't think i can change any habits at this point
0: it's an os 10 application and i use it combined with alfred which is like one of those like if you've used like quicksilver or just some sort of quick launcher thing um so i combine it with that and so i type command space to open up alfred i type rails and that no that tells alfred that i want to search dash dash's copy of the rails documentation and then i just start typing the method i want to look up so I do use that for rails because rails there tends to be a lot of indirection. I can't just show source cuz it's going to lead me down a path of having to show like a bunch of different methods. You can so, also just
1: type the method name into org. Yeah, and
0: that's the other thing that like if I didn't have this, I would do. This is that's exactly what this is doing for me. It's just making, giving it to me at command space, Rails, and then the thing, right? Right. And that has built in, like, you can download all sorts of different doc sets for it. So I'm looking at it right now. Like, I have Rails 3 and 4. I have Ruby documentation, SAS, CoffeeScript, jQuery, underscore, some Vim documentation, which is always available via help. So I don't know why I have that there. <laughs> um, all sorts of stuff in there. And even one of the favorite things I have, they have like these little cheat sheets and so I'm constantly forgetting what HTTP response codes are. So I can just type HTTP, like, 40404. Like, obviously, I remember what that one is. But then it tells me, like, not found. Or right. I can say, like, oh, I know unprocessable, I know I want unprocessable entity. So I type HTTP unprocessable entity. And it tells me, oh, that's a 422. Yeah. All right. So cool I stuff used to like know that. the RFC where that got introduced because that wasn't in the original spec. Oh, what is it? I can't remember. <laughs> Does it show you the RFC number? It's very, that's a very important detail. Uh, let's see. HTTP uh, 422. It says RFC 4918, so yes, it does. Nice. <laughs> Epic nerd cred. Uh, so that's handy. I don't know. I'll put a link into it in the show notes. Check it out. It also has a mode where it can look at the documentation for your gems, and I keep meaning to check that out, but when I was working with Chris Toomey a lot, who is really good at using these tools, uh, he mentioned that it wasn't, it didn't work super well. So I haven't put too much stock in it. That's why I haven't chased that down. But, yeah, so I don't know. Like... I am probably not going to change my debugging habits. I'm going to try and change my documentation habits. Like, I've been slowly trying to add documentation to clearance as I can.
1: Well, and the other the other problem is discoverability, too. It's less of a problem in Ruby, I think. But, like, in general, there's this additional problem of you have to know, A, that the method or class you need exists, what it's called, and that there is documentation for it. And that's not necessarily, especially in places that have a lot of DSLs and you might not even know what objects you're working with. Why do you think that's better in Ruby? I would say it's worse in Ruby. Because we don't have any, we have very little implicit stuff in Ruby. Like we can have stuff that gets hidden away, but it's very hard to have something happen in Ruby where it wasn't explicitly stated somewhere. As opposed to Haskell or Scala or even Rust where... Things are less built on inheritance and more built on type classes. And you might have to know that the type class exists, that this type has an implementation for that type class, and that there is a function that works for a generic type of that type class, which would never in a million years mention the specific type that you're going to use with it.
0: Okay. Because so, I was comparing it to languages I'm more familiar with, like C and Java.
1: Right, same in C Sharp and Java. C Sharp and Java would be even better for discoverability, more right. or less, than Ruby.
0: Especially because you're probably sitting in an IDE... Where you can just start typing. <laughs> and you're like, uh yep, this is a class I want right here. So but,
1: but like my, my my point I'm trying to get those usage examples are important. Right. So that you know like if you're an HTTP library and you don't just new request and then do stuff on it, you actually need like a request builder object and then you build and then you call build on that. That might not be a thing that's automatically I guess in that case they would just be request.builder, which would be right next to request. But still, like in general, that's what sort of What class to use and what context and what methods to call. Usage examples are helpful.
0: So, like, but if you're a C Sharp developer and you're sitting in uh, Visual Studio 2000, whatever they're up to now, right? You start typing a method and you're like, oh, okay, I've got a request thing here. What uh, what methods are available on it? And then you hit a dot and you start like, I want loosely something that does. I want, I want to access the headers so i want like set header or headers or something so you start typing headers and then you see a method and then you pause there for a second and it's like oh here's the documentation for this method right type systems are great and, and, they, let,
1: <laughs> and they let IDEs do cool stuff
0: like that which right
1: even i actually think them is still worth it
0: i think the discoverability in ruby is worse than the discoverability in languages like that because of you don't you don't have this the type system built in to help you navigate these things But, again, this is all assuming that you knew to grab that type in the first place. But you just start typing, right? You're just like, I don't know. There's probably something called request, right? And you just – like you have to know a little bit, but you're right about that. But the other thing I was going to say was – shoot, I can't remember now. Sorry. (laughs) It had to do with Java and C Sharp. It was really – it was very – again, it was very insightful. Uh, (laughs) Something about types? (laughs) Probably. And IDEs maybe.
1: Maybe about putting the letter I in front of everything since we were talking about (laughs) C-sharp. And C-sharp doesn't do impl at the end, right? They're very opposed to that, if I recall correctly.
0: No, I've never seen that in C-sharp. That was definitely a Java thing that I've only seen. And even in Java, I don't think that, like, I think that's frowned upon at this point.
1: It is, but you'll still see I truck and truck impl. Yeah.
0: Oh, I remember what I was going to say. Um, The other thing that gets really confusing for discoverability in Ruby programs is uh, at my last job, when it came time for me to hand over the Rails app I was working on, I handed it over to a very capable developer who didn't know Ruby, right? So he's like, I'll come up to speed on this, right? And so he's looking at this file, and he's like, where are these methods coming from? Because I'm not requiring anything, right? So like, he's like, these are standard library methods? I'm like, no, 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 no. Everything gets required in the gem file. He's like, but how do you know where these things come from? I'm like, uh, you, Google, source you, location. <laughs> you Google for the, the method name, and you <laughs> and you find the gem that it's in. And yeah, uh, you just do you just do method method name dot source location. Yeah, I didn't know that at the time. And okay, fair enough. I think pry was just coming into being a thing. It is sad how often you have to do that though in Ruby. Right. You have, like, wh- wh- what defines this method? Like the other day, I just defined a um, an alias in my dot files for searching through a bundle. Right. So I can I grep my code base all the time. So now I have like I can grep through the bundle to find like like I added it for figuring out like which of these gems in my bundle are requiring mini test auto run. who like who are my suspects here? Of which mm. there were a lot, but um yes. <laughs> so that didn't help narrow it down too much for me. But what did is throwing a pry inside mini test auto run <laughs> to see who re- who was requiring it. Uh just to throw the the dinosaur way of doing that, I would add throw
1: oops or raise oops and then look at the stack trace.
0: It's really interesting when you start to talk to people about debugging, like how many people will use a proper debugger, how many people will use something like pry, which is not a debugger. Uh, There are extensions to make it more debugger like and then how many people will just use puts. And there are a lot of people who I think are made to feel bad about like, I'm just using puts, but that is such a common thing for people to do. I think that's probably like the most popular, like between puts and console log and all those things. I think that's like the most popular way to do things.
1: I I mean, I'm sure it is that that said I mean nobody's gonna make me feel bad about it But like I know I would be more productive if I took the time to learn to use pry and integrate it into my workflow But I'm also just fighting years of a very 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 ingrained habit
0: I like when I first came to Ruby I switched to just using puts everywhere because I was like I'm not in an ID anymore. I don't have a visual debugger I don't know what to do, <laughs> so I would just right. put things, and then I found debuggers, and debuggers were always like lagging behind the Ruby version that you wanted to be on, so those were always a pain. Till Pry basically just works, which is nice. Yes, but I do miss the visual debuggers of like C Sharp or whatever your IDE. RubyMine gives you one. What RubyMine? Yeah, I did use that for a while, and I kept a license for a long time, so that when I wanted a visual debugger, I could just like fire up RubyMine. But it got to the point where I wasn't using it enough and I would get in and I'd be like what is it I have to do in here to make this thing do what I want it to do again and it would be need to be updated and things. So RubyMine is actually a pretty good IDE if that's your that's your thing.
1: Yeah, I think if you're the kind of person who wants an IDE in Ruby, I think it's about as good as a Ruby IDE is going to get.
0: Is which... it the is it basically the only option at this point? Um
1: no, there is a plugin for Eclipse. That I used for a while that I don't remember the name of. It's almost a separate program, and it acts kind of like it's a separate program, but it is technically an Eclipse plugin. Um, I don't know if it's still maintained. I used it four-ish years ago, maybe.
0: And what I really enjoyed, I can't remember if I could do that in RubyMind, but what I really enjoyed about the visual debuggers is like, first of all, you just like, I'm looking at this line, I just click in the gutter. I don't change the source to like right. in, input a breakpoint. And then I have to remember to take that out when I commit, or something like that. Um, which is kind of a pain in the ass. So I just click in the gutter, set a breakpoint, run the thing, and then I see the problem and I'm like, oh, this value is supposed to be this. And then I could just change it right there. Be like, oh, this is the value now. Continue running. Yep, that works. Okay, make the change. So that was a super powerful workflow that I just I don't have anymore that I'm sure. Like I know Joe Ferris, our CTO here, likes using the debugger. And I think you probably have, like, he's better at it than I've ever seen any Ruby developers be. And I don't even know if he's that great at it, but... He's better than everyone (laughs) at everything. I've just very rarely use it. So I only know, like, how do I step? (laughs) That's basically it. Yeah. So the other debugging technique I see a lot in Rails apps is better errors. So you throw that gem in your Rails app and then you raise wherever you are having problems and then that gives you live console it gives you the live console and it gives you the stack trace down the left and you can jump through the frames that way and have and have a live console at any one of those frames
1: and i think i don't know about the jumping through the stack trace but the live console is definitely just in rails proper now right that came with with rails 4.2 i think right yeah so there's your poor man's binding (laughs) dot pry
0: what else what else we got I guess when we, we should mention that we do have some space for RailsConf. We're going to be, I think Tom said, on the fourth floor. So if you're going to RailsConf and uh, we'll be recording some things, we'll probably tweet out when it is we're going to be recording because we don't know right now. And the specific location. Right. And the instructions to get there. Maybe. We'll see. you have to find it. You don't want a live audience? <laughs> we need a live audience, man. Yeah. So follow us on Twitter at, at underscore bike shed and we'll tweet out. Where it is and when it is that we're going to be recording, and uh, I'm going to be talking on Tuesday afternoon, right after lunch. And Sean is doing um, right after Thursday, right after the keynote on the final day, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm the first talk on the final day. How do you feel about having to go through the whole conference knowing you still have to do your talk? Uh, I'm just going to have a lot of whiskey. You've done these talks though before, not maybe not RailsConf, right? But you've done. I've done a, a talk lot.
1: once, and it went terribly.
0: I'm sure it didn't go as poorly as you thought. It was Windy City
1: Rails or something, wasn't it? Yeah, no, and I opened with a joke um, because it was going to be about functional programming concepts. So I opened with a slide that was uh, like supposed to be an inspirational quote, but it was just the word monad over and over again. Uh, and it was a tribute to that one functional guy who thinks he's way smarter than you. And uh, like, I thought it was really funny. if you've, If you've ever met a Haskell programmer and remember what it's like to talk to a Haskell programmer and not know Haskell, that's what it sounds like. And... I, I think it was Jessica Kerr who laughed. I know this because only one person in the entire conference laughed. And if it was actually somebody else, then I apologize. But her laugh there, is pretty it was distinctive. one person and it was a laugh. <laughs> But that was the only person So you got the I laugh just... then.
0: And that's why you think the conversation went horribly is your no, because you're opening. I was nervous the
1: other t- the entire rest of the time. I went 20 minutes under time and like I got I looked out and
0: I just had blank stares the entire time. And I don't know. I'm... I don't think you I don't I don't I don't think it's reasonable to expect anything other than blank stares for the most part. Like, what Like, do you expect people to be getting up and like, yeah, this guy, he's on to something. <laughs> I didn't have a nodder. Yeah, you got to look for the nodder. As, that's Ben's talk. We should link to that in the show notes, which we'll do. He he did a talk about how to talk to developers and uh, looking for the nodder was a big thing. Like, look for somebody who's just like giving you confidence sitting in the front row. Like, because there's always, there's generally somebody, maybe you just couldn't find them. That's just like, I'm paying attention. And by just that, what I do when I'm paying attention to somebody not uh, talking is nod. And that can kind of make you feel good about that guy where you're really at. That guy really agrees with you. <laughs> right. So just Ben's advice was just give your talk to that guy. Just keep staring at that guy.
1: <laughs> but no, like I open it It just was the most disheartening feeling when I opened with the joke and the joke falls completely flat. And then I'm like, shit, I still have to give a talk. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just like felt awful the entire time because everybody realizes how I'm not actually that funny.
0: I'm sure it'll go great this time. I'll be there. I'll n- I'll nod in the front row. Yes. Yeah. No. I'll, I'll know more people in the audience, so I'll be more comfortable. See, what I keep telling myself is I don't know any of these people for the most part. Like, I know you, and I know the people I work with, and I know, like, of various people in the Ruby community that I might see around the conference, right? And so compared to speaking in front of, like, 60 or so other ThoughtBot employees, like we did at Summer Summit or compared to giving a toast at like a best man as a best man in a wedding or something, right, where I'm like, I have to see the I have to see these people for the rest of my life, right? <laughs> or from in my yeah. coworkers sense for a good for a good long time anyway. So if I go out there and I do terribly at my conference talk, like most people are going to tell me I did okay anyway, and then I'm um, not going to actually see those people. Uh, that's what I keep telling myself. And I think it'll be I think I'll be fine. I'm trying to prepare as much as I possibly can. So
1: yeah no it'll be fine i mean on the other hand if it goes terribly you might like just your your career will be over
0: right I, if i don't show up on the podcast in a couple of weeks you know why that conference is not <laughs> quite terrible. i was talking to my wife the other night and like when i do like best man speeches or at one time i emceed a friend's wedding and uh basically what i found is when i have like a big public speaking thing coming up it helps me to have a drink or possibly two beforehand <laughs> Yes, And so I was talking to my wife before, and I was like, well, my talk's at one fifty, so I think we am going to have to cut out for an early lunch and find a bar and have a beer and like a burger, and I'll be totally fine. So that's my, that's my plan as of now. The
1: first time I gave my talk was at a local meetup group instead of at a conference to practice for the conference, and I had a whiskey beforehand, and it helped a
0: lot. Right. And I think that that can go obviously one of two ways. Right. You can that can go really poorly <laughs> if you have too many whiskeys or whatever. Right. Um, but I know that I've done this a couple of times and if I have a beer or maybe two that it'll relax me a little more and I'll I'll be less less nervous, less anxious. My talk's at 9 a.m. though. So I think if I if I tried <laughs> to have that strategy, I would feel
1: just terrible about myself <laughs> as, a, as a person. I'll
0: come to your hotel room with uh with a flask and we'll just have to have to have some whiskey.
1: Yeah, or you know what? We could we could do a drinking game because the, the keynote before mine is the Rails core panel. Do <laughs> the
0: Rails core panel drinking game. I don't think, see, now that's where it's going to go off the rails for you. <laughs> I see what you did there. Oh. Unintentionally. I didn't even mean to pun. Uh, okay, let's wrap up. Yeah. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 12. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you want to give us feedback on this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed or you can email us at hosts at bike shed FM or you can comment on bike slash 12. Thanks for listening to the bike shed and we'll see you next time.